This is James Walker and welcome to Real Talk Real People. This is the podcast that turns the mic over to everyday people to hear what they have to say about the issues and problems we face as a society. Hello folks, thank you very much for joining us again this week. You know, if you're following the national news, you'll notice that the focus from COVID-19 is now shifting and it is shifting to its effect on the mental health of the nation. We had a conversation on that subject with two professors from Quinnipiac University in our episode on coping. And that is about five or six episodes back. And I guess a lot of people are feeling a little depressed and a lot of anxiety because that episode continues to be extremely popular. But while the media is reporting on the nation's mental health, we're going to go back to a conversation we had with Raisha Bevins and Louis R. Reed about the lack of mental health resources in the black community and also the black community's reluctance to seek it out. I just personally think that mental illness is is something, like you said, that's not really talked about in the black community. And my family, um, myself, including my brother, who's been incarcerated for a couple years now, has dealt with and suffered from mental illness. And a lot of times when we diagnose people, we don't even necessarily just look at the cause. You know, if I just look at the fact that he he even ended up in the criminal justice system, part of that is because of the stigma that I believe mental illness has in the black community. And maybe if he felt like people more open or he could be more open about it, he would have gotten the care that he needed and not declined to the point where it ended up impacting him and impacting someone else. Yeah. So, so when you talk about stigma, yeah. what is that stigma? What is it that you think keeps black men, not only black yeah. men, but black women also from seeking uh, mental health help? Yeah, yeah. Can I share? Do you mind if I share a little bit about my brother's story? No. Okay. So my brother, um, Joshua, he has schizophrenia and he was diagnosed in his early 20s. And before that, if I just look at his story, um, he witnessed um, domestic violence when he was younger. I was old. I'm seven years older than him. So I was out of the home already and in college. But he was in the home and he really took to heart the fact that my mother was beat by her boyfriend. And he actually blamed himself, like, I should have been the one to protect her, right? And my mother ended up getting the courage to leave the relationship, and she came home one day, um, sat in her room, she got home from work, and her ex ended up jumping out of her closet. He was hiding in there, and he beat her brutally with the alcohol bottle. And my brother came home, I believe, at 11 years old, and he found her on the porch. She had, you know, she was able to run down the stairs and run away, and he came and he saw her in that state. And I know that, that that really impacted him. And I believe that yeah. because uh, when I was a young boy, and I think this is probably true of all young men, and probably women um, also, but you just feel a need to protect your mother when you're in that situation. And when yeah. you can't, what it does to you mentally and psychologically is is really a challenge to come uh, yeah. to overcome because you've, 
watch the two most important people in your life. One is beating the other, and there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm sure your brother felt the same way. Yeah, and this was, um, you know, his biological father had moved down south, so he felt already kind of was dealing with feeling abandoned or whatever he felt around that. And I know that that changed him. You know, he went on from, from that moment, you know, he started to get in trouble in the criminal justice system. He even, from a young age, was dealing with ADHD and um, would get beat because of his behaviors in school. And I so I just think that, as you spoke to earlier, you know, mental illness, the black community, we're predisposed because of poverty and all those issues. And um, I just think that had he had someone in the school system or even in his family that paid a little bit more attention to the impact of what he was dealing with, things could have gone differently. You know, there's kind of like this culture of silence, like what happens in the home stays in the home. And I remember that as a little girl. Like, I remember yeah, us dealing with too. stuff and wanting to speak about it, but I remember this this feeling like you shouldn't be public about that. You shouldn't express that. And I think until we really, you know, change that in our community, you know, we're still going to have some of the challenges where people feel like it makes them weaker if they have a mental health issue. What in terms of your brother and his mental health, and he led him to some drug use, correct? He did, he did utilize drugs. He did use um, mostly weed, and I think sometimes abuse, you know, painkillers and stuff like that. So he did, he did deal with that, but I think it was a form of self-medication. I think it was before he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. You know, he had been in and out of counseling at some periods of time, but there's this stigma that, you know, black men, you have to be strong. Right. Let's bring Lewis in here because this is Lewis's specialty, drug addiction. First, I guess one of the things that startled me is that people, I think the national survey from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, nearly 20 million Americans in 2017 were addicted to drugs, mm-hmm. some of them as young as 12. Mm-hmm. That is... That's reported. Man, that's reported. That's reported. And so what you, you're think, saying is think, that... Think about the people such as... Uh, the community think about the people such as the communities by where we come from who won't necessarily report uh, whatever issues that they may be debilitated by because we have a suspicion of institutions we have a suspicion of the system we have a suspicion of social workers and and the likes thereof Uh, we won't necessarily report those things because if I report it then not only am I going to be stigmatized but it also exacerbates the collateral consequences of being a black in America, being B black in America with a potential felony, C being black in America with a felony, and you know living in an economically disadvantaged uh, environment. So there are different layers to just simply saying that uh, you know it's been X amount of people in the United States of, the United States of America who have uh, mental health issues. Now, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about domestic violence. In your experience, how much does that play a role in some of these young men going astray to use, you know? Yeah, well, so let's let's ground out. I want to ground my conversation in this, right? You know, quite simply, and and just uh, not too long ago, I was in a, uh, a conversation with some people who have access to privilege, prestige, et cetera. And they asked me a, a similar question. Essentially, that was translated to 
ask me why is it that so many people who come from the Bridgeports of Connecticut or the you know Harlem's of New York or the you know South Side of Chicago's why is it that they happen they have a tendency to be plagued with the issues that they're plagued with and quite simply I told them this if you take a plant and you put that plant in a dark room what is going to happen with that plant that plant is not going to grow however if you expose just a pin light a pin light uh, of exposure to that plant, the portion by which that plant has been exposed to, it will flourish, even if the rest of it, you know, uh, doesn't necessarily uh, flourish in that, to that degree. The same way with human potential. If you have people who come from a place where they are exposed to violence, they are exposed to trauma, not even direct trauma. Let's talk about vicarious trauma. Mm. Let's talk about how, you know, I know more people who either A, are, were killed before their 18th birthday or their 21st birthday, and or B, who have been imprisoned before their 18th or 21st birthday than I know who graduated from college. When you think about that vicarious trauma, it produces a mental hernia of the sort uh, for those people who, by the way, I should add, that our brains aren't fully developed before the age of 25 years old. So when you have those people and they are in an environment and they're exposed to, you know, seeing their mama slapped under the refrigerator, uh, seeing their cousin who got shot, uh, seeing uh, their father absent from their lives because he's been, you know, criminally prosecuted. All of those things are going to play into, you know, what we call in psychology, either transgenerational and or intergenerational patterns of behavior. Yeah, I think um, for too many young black kids, yellow tape, mm. that, you know, crime scene tape mm -hmm. and police officers and sirens and lights are just all too common. You know, not, only, not only is it all too common, but you think about this, right? Dysfunctional has become functional. Right. And functional has become dysfunctional. When you think about how people, how people who have been strained with all of these different things, it's being exposed to you know crime scene tape and uh, uh, the likes thereof, that those things, those things will arrest anybody's development. That's correct. It's going to arrest anybody's development. So I just wanted to really you know bring that point home to your listening audience who may be culturally disconnected from the things that we go through, mm -hmm. um, you know, and talking about we black, brown, and poor white people in the United States right. of America. I want to go back to a little bit about domestic violence here and and those problems that you saw as a social worker dealing with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. How big a problem does poverty and the lack of having a male role model in the home affect young men and women too for that matter because women are little girls are daddy's little girls and you know without that how do you think that affects them growing up? I think it affects um, black boys and girls equally. It's difficult. And it's not so much what happens. I think it's what the kids make it mean. When, when, when we have male figures that are absent or that aren't involved, kids tend to make that mean that that person doesn't love them. That is correct. It's how I think every abused kid probably yeah. feels is that he's getting, he or she is getting beat because they did something wrong. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, so how do we fix that? 
Well, I think, you know, so I've done a lot of self-development work and I would love to just have more people in our community do that program. It's called the Landmark Forum. And it really deals with when we keep living into, like we bring our past into our future. Right. And we don't realize that. I mean, we th- we know it like conceptually, but we don't realize every, we're always living, bringing our past into our future. Yeah, and we that's drag the, it right along with it. it. We drag it right along with us as if, you know, we don't have an understanding that that's the past. Right. We are now in the present and working toward the future. And if you continue to bring that past baggage, it just gets heavier that's and heavier. Exactly. So I, I think it's number one, just really, you know, empowering and supporting our children that it doesn't mean something personally about them. And then if the parents, if we could actually empower the parents to, to actually realize the same thing, I think like Lewis said, we're all kind of repeating like generational cycles unknowingly. But it takes one person to really stand up and say, like, I'm not going to be a victim to this cycle anymore. That's going to transform everything. You're listening to Real Talk, Real People, the podcast that turns the mic over to everyday people. play a part here in our own um in keeping ourselves down i love that you're asking the question do we harm ourselves i think we do but i think it's a little more complex than that that, right i don't i don't want us to blame to kind of like victim blame like i think that as a as a social worker you know someone who practiced for 12 years i think part of the what we can actually do is education and empower people and really create safe spaces that it is actually okay to talk about this stuff and that it has to start it, it, like this one conversation, this, one conversation, this right. one conversation, depending on who's listening, can really shift what people feel is OK. Well, I think it's, um, it's very important that people I don't care if you're black, white or whatever. I just think it's very important for people to understand it is OK to talk about mental health issues. And I'm not sure why we why we have stigmatized it. Well, I have, I have, a, I have a notion around that and I want to thread this uh, to something that Raisha talked about. When you come from a culture of silence, when you come from, you know, the the notion that what happens in this house stays in this Mm -hmm. house, not only does that not give you an appropriate outlet for you to have a cathartic experience by just, you know, expression of talk, Mm -hmm. but what it does is, again, it further reinforces a mistrust of systems. Yeah. Do you think we need this in the schools? Uh, that's exactly where I was going to go, brother. <laughs> you met, you read my mind. Okay. Because if I just look at my life, like I, I appreciate that this um, interview has really given me the opportunity to reflect on my life because I had totally forgot about some parts about it. If I look at my life, my father, every I didn't know him that well just because of what he was dealing with. But when I reconnected with my family, maybe like six years ago at a family reunion, they all told me he was so smart. He was like brilliant in math. And they were all like, you're just like your dad. And I started to question, well, what happened? What went wrong? I actually started making a documentary to really explore his story and his life. And I didn't finish it yet. But what I ended up discovering is that when he was younger, his father, who was, um, I think he was, a, he was like a Native American orphan. He drank. He came home and he drank so much so that my grandmother and she would take my grandmother would take her, my father, and their brothers into a car so they didn't have to be home 
when when he got home to avoid the abuse. Now, if someone in the school system would have saw he has all this potential, what's happening? I don't think I don't think sorry. <laughs> I don't think anybody it just doesn't occur for me anybody at that day and age asks the question of what's happening with this person that has all this potential. And I think if in the school system if we start training educators to look for that first of all you have to get educators that care and that know simply that education is not just about teaching someone math it's about the whole person who is this whole person what are they dealing with and the more we put that into school systems that's a point where we could actually make a difference you know with these kids and help the family but don't you think that's putting a little bit too much on teachers or do you think we need to change the whole the way the way teachers approach teaching because Quite frankly, they go to school to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, not to, unless something has changed. So if this, if that model has changed, then maybe it should, because the education, the education model hasn't changed in what since, certainly since I've been alive, it's the, it's the same thing. Yeah. And I think I think we need to change it. I think if I'm honest, the education system is a Eurocentric, patriarchal system, and a lot of times our people are left behind. We have evidence of that already with the the school to prison pipeline. Right. It's not working, right? So if you really want to educate people, you really have to start looking at the whole person. It doesn't mean teachers have to do it themselves. It means that we raise their awareness and they work in partnership with other mental health professionals to make sure that the community is really getting what they need. I think that we have to radically reform our criminal justice system because what's happening is that you have people uh, pro- applying a criminal solution to social issues. That's you right. have you have people applying a criminal solution to social issues. So for us, black, brown, red, and poor white people, our issues are inextricably linked to our criminal justice system. Right? We are criminalizing addiction. Raisha's brother doesn't don't he doesn't necessarily need to be in in the Department of Corrections. He no, needs to be in a in a rehabilitation center where he can have appropriate access to mental health treatment. We are criminalizing addiction, we are criminalizing poverty, we are criminalizing so many different things in the United States of America that yes, you know, as dysfunctional as it is, I can understand why a 13 year old would feel that he or she would have to either be sex trafficked and or selling drugs because they don't necessarily have those two parents within their house to give them give them the appropriate navigation that they need you know i'm glad you pointed out that when you said red or white added that to you know black or brown because Mm -hmm. it really is a lot about no money. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether you're black, brown, or white. You have no money. You don't have access. Correct. And that is really the big issue here. And is I will access. I'll also say this: those who are closest to the problem are also closest to the solution, but furthest from resources and power. So, true. so we know those of us that have been, you know, in direct proximity to the problems. We know how to bring about the a solvable solution so that we can radically change the ills, the social ills that we have been plagued and debilitated by. Raisha, domestic violence, social issues, schools, and so forth. You've talked about all of that. Yes. What's What's your final word here? What can we do to help these young black people and just young people in general when it comes to mental health issues, but particularly those in the black community because access is a major problem? What can we do to help them? We each, I think it's through a village and a community mentality. I think that that's something very much that works about our community. And if you see someone 
that you know that's dealing with something, talk to them, support them. You know, if you're a professional that's in the school system, you know, talk about some of these changes that would really make a difference. I mean, I'm a part of my daughter's um, PTA, and they were just talking about the fact of how much trauma some of the kids are experiencing. And I think there's this whole, you know, argument that we should screen people, young people for PTSD, because how many of our kids have gone through trauma by the time they reach age 11 or something like that? So I'm a strong proponent of that. I think with that in the education system, we could really transform this issue. You know, I agree with yeah. that because uh, what I don't think people recognize is how PTSD can really affect your life and how long term it is. I think if we associate it with men in the military and women in the military, well, we don't associate PTSD with everyday life right. and the trauma that happens to you. Right. Lewis, we, we know about addiction and we know that a lot of these young men and women turn to addiction. I was kind of surprised to find out that alcohol is still the number one yep. um, um, mm -hmm. uh, drug of, of choice. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do, man, to help these, um, help these people? Um, well, we're going to continue know. to have conversations like this. Uh, we are going to you know, continue to get laws passed um, like how we do at Cut 50. Uh, we are going to continue to go on what we are calling our empathy tour, where we are going into communities literally all across the, the, the country having conversations on what it's like to be impacted by the criminal justice system. And in our minds, uh, there is no dichotomy or trichotomy between people who have who have criminal convictions, people who are, who are survivors of violence, and people who are substance abuse users. We can continue to have conversations like this because we need the community at large uh, to be in intimate spaces such as this, we need yes, to, we them to be in, in, in involved, involved, right. involved. And so, if you want to be involved, don't know how to be involved. Uh, if this if this message is resonant to uh, not yourself or you know someone in your periphery, make sure you text the word empathy to nine seven four eight three. We will definitely uh, be in contact with you, and we'll keep the conversation going. You've been listening to Real Talk, Real People. If you would like to be on the show have a comment about the show or perhaps you have an idea that the show should explore give us a call at 203-605-1859 or email us at realtalkrealpeoplect at gmail.com and remember start your sundays with my column in hearst connecticut newspaper statewide and start your mondays right here at real talk real people have a good week folks we'll talk again next week